We are continuing in the Minor Prophets. And as we said earlier, we're going to conclude this morning our study in the, the book of Habakkuk. You know, it's always good when we, we go through these Minor Prophets, these books that we don't often tend to read or study because one day we're going to be in heaven. And you might just bump into Habakkuk one day and at least you'll be able to say, ah, oh, we studied your book. It was really good. As I said earlier, you know, one of the things I've, I've just respected this man for and loved about this book as we've studied it already is just the honesty. Habakkuk doesn't pretend that everything's fine. You know, we, we believe in God and so we've got to walk around with a kind of fake Christian smile. You know the one I'm talking about. Habakkuk just goes to God and pulls his heart out. He says, Lord, this isn't right. As we reminded ourselves last week, the book fits round about 612 to 606 BC, a very, very narrow window. A lot of the books, we don't know, there's a kind of a wide uh, range uh, dates. But Habakkuk, we know very much, it was focused on the, the final years leading up to the Babylonian invasion, the first siege of Jerusalem. There were three sieges of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the first of those in 606 BC. And so we know that this is just leading up to that time. And Habakkuk is speaking to the Lord about the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom as it was. I read this quote last week, but I just want to read it again from um, Aaron Remmers. He says, Habakkuk, the eighth of the minor prophets, occupies a special place, for he does not speak to men under God's commission, as do the other prophets, but he speaks about his people and their enemies, the Chaldeans, to God. So this isn't a book where God is, kind of, thus says the Lord, and Habakkuk delivering a message from God. It's Habakkuk going to God and just pouring his heart out and God responding to that. And yet he is referred to, as we've already said, as a prophet. You know, as you said last week, he doesn't complain about God. He complains to God about the situation. John Wadey uh, said when Habakkuk only looked at his circumstances, he was bewildered and confused. <laughs> Doesn't this sound a little bit like each one of us? When he waited for God and listened to his word... He rejoiced in song. The real purpose of religion is not to have the doubts removed, but to help us be sure of God's control of our lives and our world. A great summary of this book. You know, and when we look at things from our perspective, we do get a little concerned. We can get very anxious. But when we wait and we learn to trust God, and it is one of those difficult, difficult things. I just want to share with you a little anecdote, a little story. Dave uh, Shirley, who's uh, one of the principals of the Calvary Chapel Bible College uh, in Murrieta in America, uh, or at least was uh, there in that role, a wonderful man of God, lovely uh, scholar. But he was talking about uh, a situation where he was driving many years ago for an interview, and he was running a little bit late, and he was driving on the road. He really felt God say to him as he drew, drove past this, this car that was broken down and somebody was trying to change a tire. And he really felt the Lord say to him, I want you to go back and, or to stop and help this, this person. And he's like, I'm going for an interview. I can't do that. So, so he just drove past. And the Lord really laid upon his heart that conviction that he should have helped that person. So he's thinking, oh, I'm be late for my interview. So anyway, he decided, okay, he'll be obedient to God just totally contrary to that which we would naturally think is the, the right thing to do. And he, he turned around, he went back to the next junction and went all the way back up again and came back down. He was on kind of a dual carriageway or you know, the huge wide roads they have in America. 
And as he's coming past, he pulls over to the side of the road, gets out, and he helps this chap change the, the tire in the car. And they just get chatting. And uh, this guy just says to him, I said, oh, so thank you so much. He said, I'm running late. And, and you know, Dave said, yes, I'm, I'm also running late. But I saw you, and, you know, I just, you know, decided to help. He said, yeah, he said, I'm, uh, I only work just over there. He said, but uh, I've got to get there. He said, because I've got an interview uh, that I'm doing. I'll be turning up in a few minutes. And so Dave just started chatting to him. It turns out that this was the guy that was going to be interviewing him. You know, sometimes what looks right to us is not what's right in God's eyes. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose in all these things. You know, there's so many situations like that that we can recount. But again, as Habakkuk steps back from his situation and looks at things from God's perspective, he sees things differently. Again, we said last week that Habakkuk is the epitome of that question, why God do you allow? And we've all asked it. We've all been in situations in our lives that we kind of question God. And, you know, the book is Habakkuk's summary of his cry to God. And the conclusion really is it's simply because God is God. God can do whatever he likes. And what we do know is that God is good and does good. Psalm 119, verse 68. If you don't know it by heart, learn it. Learn that verse. Psalm 119, verse 68. God is good and does good. Statement of fact. God can never do anything that is not good. And as I read last week, the lyrics of the song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's a great song. He said, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man, so I'll never understand it all. For only God is God. Habakkuk's name, as we said last week, means to wrestle. And we said some translate it as embracer. But it's, it is embracing, but it's embracing in terms of wrestling with someone. And we said probably he was a Levite, a musician, as you'll see as we get into the third chapter. Certainly he refers to himself as a prophet, although he doesn't specifically bring a message from the Lord. But he uses that title of himself, a prophet. Zechariah and Haggai, the only other two that actually do that. Contemporaries with Jeremiah, Huldah the prophetess, Zephaniah and so on. Habakkuk reflects a familiarity also with the writings of Amos and Hosea, Micah and Isaiah. So he was a man of God. He loved God's word. And he was brokenhearted looking at the state of the nation. Again, we said last week that rabbinic tradition suggested he was the son of the Shulamite woman, um, this child that had been raised from the dead by Elisha. It may or may not be true. I've no way of verifying that. But he witnessed this great reform by Josiah. But that that had then faded as the subsequent kings, sons of Josiah, had come to the throne and rejected God. And of course, Josiah had been killed in this battle at Megiddo by Pharaoh and the lead up to these things. As Assyria was falling as an empire, briefly Egypt kind of filled that void, but then soon to be subdued by Babylon. Of course, he'd heard that Nineveh, this great city that Nahum prophesied about, we saw a couple of weeks ago now, had fallen. And now they're in this kind of quandary. And so his cry to God, really, uh, is all about this justice that he sees going on in Jerusalem. And this is where the book starts. You know, why do the unrighteous prosper in Israel? There was injustice, there was immorality, cruelty. And he goes to God and says, Lord, why? Why are you allowing this? And God's response is, I'm going to deal with it. And you'd think that would be great, fantastic, Lord. That was what I was hoping to hear. And yet it's not because what God says to him is, I am going to bring judgment. 
but I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. And Habakkuk's like, but, but Lord, they're even more wicked than we are. But then God says that the Babylonians won't escape God's wrath. And that's what we see, particularly as we go through chapter 2. We'll look at the details in a second. That leads to the kind of the question then, you know, what are you going to do about the Babylonians? God makes it really clear they will be judged because they are going to overstep the mark. They're going to go beyond their remit. Yes, God raised them up to bring judgment on Israel. But they went way beyond. Pride and arrogancy and all those kind of things. And so we see God's response to that in chapter 2 because Israel's iniquity was great. So must be the judgment. And as a result of all these things, then we see this incredible anthem of praise to conclude the book, the third chapter. It's a short little book. Now, last week we got up to chapter 2, verse 4, but I'm just going to go back to the beginning of chapter 2 just so we get the flow as we go through this. So chapter 2, verse 1, we begin, and it says, I will stand upon my watch. This is Habakkuk speaking. And set me upon the tower. Now, Ezekiel particularly is a prophet that uses that expression of being a watchman and so on. It was really the call of all the prophets to be like a watchman watching over the nation. Just as the the shepherds would use those towers that they had to stand and look and watch over their sheep so that the prophets would look and watch over the nation, look over the people. And Habakkuk makes that statement really that I am a watchman here. I will stand upon my watch. I will set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. And what I shall answer when I am reproved. Really what he's saying is I want to see what God has got to say to the people. And and reproved is not in terms of judgment as such. It's not implying that. It's really waiting to see what the Lord is going to speak. Again, in times of uncertainty, waiting on the Lord is the best course of action. It's the most unnatural because we want to do something and we are all the same. We all want to do something. God sometimes just calls us to wait. There's nothing that God doesn't know about our situation and circumstances. There was a great bit we were going through in Jeremiah a little while ago, our Thursday evening studies, and there's a portion where Jeremiah is just complaining to God about the situation, and God comes back and basically says, Jeremiah, I know more about your situation than you do. And actually, it's worse than you think. It's kind of probably not what Jeremiah wanted here, but it just shows that God knew exactly what was going on. And God promises Jeremiah that there is a solution and that God is with him. Verse 2 goes on. And the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that they may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So God's plan and purpose will be fulfilled in God's time, not in ours. And verse 2 is really just saying, you know, write the things the Lord is saying so that the people in the nation of Judah understand they know what's coming. Write it down. They may run that readeth it. Now verse 4 is what we kind of stopped at last week because it's this famous verse we know, particularly the second half. But it starts to look at Nebuchadnezzar now. Because Nebuchadnezzar's soul was lifted up in pride. And it says, behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. So God is saying, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to bring judgment. And yet, already God is acknowledging that these Babylonians are proud. And then, in contrast, we're told, but the just shall live by his faith. 
And this really is the, 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 one of the, the big statements of the book. It's one of the kind of key statements in the Old Testament in many respects. It's the verse that's really sparked the Reformation in Europe. Martin Luther read this and suddenly it clicked. All the, the things he was doing, penance and crawling on his knees trying to please God. And so he suddenly realized that all that was just futile. Just as Abraham was justified by his faith, Martin Luther realized, and it became, as I say, the touchstone of the Reformation, that the just, those who are justified, who are right in God's eyes, are made right by faith, not by works, not by anything we can do. And now we go on, and this is where we, we pick up really from this morning. Yea, also, because he transgresses by wine. Now, this is talking of Nebuchadnezzar, so get the context. God is now speaking about this king that... Have a concern that the Lord is going to use him. But God is saying, I know the situation. Yea, also because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. Neither keepeth at home who enlarges desire as hell and as death and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all peoples. So Nebuchadnezzar was like a drunken man. He was caring nothing for anybody. or for what He just did whatever he pleased. Again, neither keepeth at home. He was going on these expeditions and trying to subdue nations around about him, trying to enlarge his territory and so on. But again, all of that wasn't enough. You know, enough was not enough. He wasn't satisfied with more. You may have had moments in your life, maybe before you were a Christian, maybe even since you've been Christians, where you've given yourself over for a time to things of the world. They will not satisfy you know, we're told, Solomon tells us, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear is not satisfied with hearing. You know, you can have as much of those things as you want, it won't satisfy you. The only thing I've ever found that satisfies is the Word of God. You, you can never have too much of the Word of God, and it will never leave you feeling cold or empty or... See, Nebuchadnezzar had everything, but it all amounted to nothing. Everything eventually was going to be taken away from him. Now we're going to see there's five woes that are pronounced against Babylon. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 5, we've got these five woes, these five declarations from God. You get some kind of idea, the scale of the city. Babylon was 15 miles aside, like a square typically, but 15 miles in each direction. It was the best man could do. It was the, the ultimate city. You've probably heard the, the fables of the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. This was one of the most incredible cities ever built by man. Of course, it was the location where the Tower of Babel had once stood, and the remains of it were still there. In fact, you can still, if you go onto Google Earth, you can find it today. It's still there, just outside of Babylon. The plain of Suez is there, and there's what was it what they referred to as a ziggurat, this kind of like this building, uh, the remains of it. Saddam Hussein was in the process of rebuilding much of Babylon. And the Bible speaks that this place will once again become a major player on the world stage. A lot of people question it because there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. And yet the Bible clearly says that will happen. And so we're waiting expectantly. There's been all sorts of rumors over the years about various government groups using Babylon as a, as a center. We'll see. 
In time, God will reveal his plan. But at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, this had become the world empire. Egypt had fallen, Assyria had fallen, Babylon was now the great player on the world stage. Every nation around Babylon was being subdued. So verse 6 goes on and says, Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, speaking about the people and the nations looking on, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. Just taking things by force. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Some of the commentators think he has the idea of actually um, loading himself with debt. But I think the idea, the bigger picture here, is he was borrowing whatever he could for the building projects he was doing. The idea of thick clay, of course, you build with clay. But he was doing all these incredible building projects in Babylon. Of course, that's at a cost. And it says, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee and thou shall be for booties unto them? So those he's oppressing, the Babylon was oppressing, suddenly is all going to turn around. And we know that's exactly what happened. We know in 539 BC, Cyrus, or the armies of Cyrus, just marched into Babylon. In fact, they did it even without a battle. It was all prophesied in the book of Isaiah what they would do. They simply blocked the river upstream in the Euphrates. And as the water level dropped, they were able to walk in under the gates that had been across the river. They just literally walked under the gates into the city. Apparently it was in a couple of days that they were in there before some of the citizens of Babylon even knew that they'd been taken over. They did it without a fight. And Babylon fell. By that time it was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belteshazzar, who was ruling. And it was actually the night that he's having this incredible party and they go and get the vessels from the temple, or from the temple of their gods, the ones that have been taken from Jerusalem, the cups and things. And they start drinking out of these vessels that have been used for the God of Israel. And they start drinking wine from them. And God causes his hand to ride upon the world. You know the account in the book of Daniel. Basically saying to Belteshazzar that your time is up. Your days are numbered. And you're going to be judged. <clears throat> Verse 8 carries on. Because thou... Has spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. Very clear that God is speaking because of the way that they've almost adopted that Assyrian mindset, the cruelty that we spoke about with the Assyrians. Babylon were doing these things as well. But because of this, it's all going to turn around against them. The second woe then. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness. Just wanting everything. I mean, it's a little bit like our culture today, isn't it? There's a lot of parallels we could draw. You know, just everything is about covetousness. Look at what I've got. Look at this. Look at that. And everybody wants to have the next thing. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high. It's all about promoting yourself, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and has sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall be, shall, shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. We kind of use that expression about being a fly on the wall, don't we? The idea here is, in fact, very often we have these kind of double witnesses. Sometimes the Lord calls the sun and the moon or the heaven and the earth to witness 
and so on. It's a biblical principle that for any situation where there's a witness, there'll always be two witnesses that are called for. And here we've got that same kind of idea. The stones shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber. These things that are part of the fabric are observing, in a sense. It's like an analogy. They're observing everything that was going on. And they're going to be able to testify of the wickedness and all that had been going on in Babylon, all that had done. Adam Clark, in his commentary, says, Nebuchadnezzar wished to aggrandize his family and make his empire permanent, but both family and empire were soon cut off by the death of his son, Belshazzar, and the consequent destruction of the Chaldean Empire. The third woe, then. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establishes a city by iniquity. Never a good founding point. Maybe Putin should read this at the moment. Verse 13. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. God's saying, you know, all these people that Nebuchadnezzar was subduing, God was effectively rebuking Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon here, saying, these people aren't yours just to treat them as slaves, just using labor in the fire, that idiom of of affliction. And it says that the people shall weary themselves for vanity. Nebuchadnezzar was just doing this for his own glory. And let me just add at this point, as we said last week, in the book of Daniel, we're told that God does bring judgment on Nebuchadnezzar himself. And for seven years, he's out eating as if it were like a cow. Daniel seems to be the one that cares for him during that time. And at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar repents. But this is all this lead up to that. So God had given the nations, including Israel, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And they weren't to be mistreated for Babylon's vanities, the idea. And this woe finishes, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The other famous verse that we have in Habakkuk. We all know this verse, I'm sure. Again, that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I've always had the privilege of living near the sea. I love the sea. I used to go uh, back in Deal in Kent where I grew up and was born. I used to go and sit on the beach sometimes and just sit and look out at the water. Now, on a, on a clear day, you can actually see France. Um, but the, the water is just such a huge expanse. And maybe you've, you've gone to the, the beach here, either in Hailing or South Sea, and you look out at the sea and you just look at this expanse of water. And particularly if you, you get a, a nice evening and you sit there and just look and it's just, just mesmerizing. One morning, I was up on the beach very early and I'd just gone up to uh, just spend some time with the Lord and I just sat there with my Bible. And as I was just walking back from the beach, two very dear ladies came up to me and just said, So we, we saw you sitting there. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, thank you. We're just very concerned about you. And we're Christians, and we just, we, you know, we did. and anyway, so I just put my Bible, I said, that's I've been praying. And they oh, that's okay then. I think they thought I was about to throw myself in the water or something, but bless them, it was very kind of them. But I love the sea. And, and we're told here that the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth just as the waters fill the sea. It's a great picture. And really, what we, the, the context here is that the reason... Nebuchadnezzar, and obviously in the larger picture, Babylon, should have acted with humility is because one day the Lord will rule the whole earth. 
Now, Nebuchadnezzar will eventually come to that place in his own life where he acknowledges that God is the one that appoints kings and sets up kings and kingdoms and so on. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, we have this incredible dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. This statue with a head of gold and the belly, uh, or the, sorry, the chest and the arms of silver, the belly of bra- brass or bronze, and then the, the legs of iron and the feet then of clay and iron mixed together. And they, they represent the world nations from that time. Babylon, of course, being that head of gold. And Daniel gives this explanation. Persia being the chest and arms of silver, which then gave way to the kingdom of Greece with Alexander the Great. It's an incredible prophecy because this is you know, 600 BC or thereabouts. And it foretold the whole of human history from that point. The iron represented the nation of Rome, or the kingdom, the empire of Rome, which crushed in pieces everything that went before it. And then we have the iron and clay, which many commentators, and certainly with everything the Bible tells us, seems to be a revived Roman Empire. Which is interesting because, of course, we've got the European Union, which is based upon, in a sense, the western part of the Roman Empire. But, of course, there's the eastern part of the Roman Empire too. So all of this somehow seems to be is going to come together again. We're on the edge of these things happening right now. So this was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar... Had. But what's interesting is that when we look, Daniel, in uh, explaining this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, says, and in the days of these kings, this is the final king, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is the kingdom that will be established by Jesus Christ when he returns to this earth. In the Gospel of Matthew, 32 times, Matthew uses an expression that none of the other Gospel writers use. It's the kingdom of heaven, or a better way of saying it is the kingdom from heaven. This isn't the the kingdom of God. That's the general kind of uh, God is in control of everything. But this is the kingdom from heaven, the kingdom that is going to come down, that is going to be established on this earth. It's an earthly kingdom. And it's a subset of the kingdom of God. And this is why we are told to pray, thy kingdom come. That's what that prayer is all about. The God's, the, the Jesus' millennial kingdom to be established on this earth. There are so many scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New. Do you remember when Mary is visited by Gabriel? Gabriel gives her this wonderful news that she's going to have a baby. But that this baby, this child, is going to sit on the throne of David. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't sat on any throne ruling and reigning on earth yet. But it's the constant theme of the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Isaiah we read this, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills. We've talked about this recently. And all the nations shall flow unto all the nations shall flow unto it. This is speaking of Jerusalem. Jesus will be ruling and reigning. And many people shall go and say, Come, ye let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. All the military might and spending will be done. They will be put into agriculture and farming. And the spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a wonderful time it will be when Jesus rules this earth. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar shouldn't have been so proud. 
Verse 15. This is now the fourth word. Woe unto him that gives his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him and maketh him drunken also, that thou may look on their nakedness. Okay, it's a very clear picture. Getting somebody drunk to take advantage of them. Sadly, we hear a lot of those things going on today. Verse 16 carries on, the same thing. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. Now, this is a picture, what it's trying to illustrate. Let me just read from Kaufman's commentary, because it puts it really well. He says, against treachery and inhumanity, this woe is directed not so much against the overwhelming violence of the predator Babylon, but against the false, treacherous, deceitful, and cunning ways they use to seduce and destroy their neighbor nations. That's the picture, that they were, as it were, getting them drunk, metaphorically, to seduce them. And God turns it back around. Verse 16 is really saying it's going to be turned back around on you. You will be uncovered. You will be exposed. Interestingly, in Revelation 17, we have the judgment of Babylon foretold. And yes, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon at the time were judged. They were dealt with, but Babylon itself was never destroyed. It's yet future. Revelation 17, it says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sits on many waters. We have this picture painted. The idea, again, is this seduction with whom the kings of the earth had committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. As you study this, you find out that it paints a picture of Babylon. And a lot of people see the Roman Catholic Church in this, and yes, there is to a point. What we find is that this entity, this, this, this woman that's being described here, is clothed with the Vatican, the colors of the Catholic Church. Just as in Revelation 12, the seed of the woman is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. Okay, so we have in Revelation 12, effectively Eve and the promised seed that came all the way down from Eve to the Messiah, clothed with the nation of Israel. In Revelation 17 and 18, we have Babylon, and Babylon is where really all of the uh, idolatry and abominations that have got out through all the religions of the world through time. That's where it all started. It started at Babel, after the flood. That's where it all started. And it's carried on, this theme. But that's clothed with the Roman Catholic Church. And we look at that, we talk about that in detail some other time. So not only the common people, but the kings, the rulers of the earth have been intoxicated by this false religious system, which has become irresistible to them and exerted a power over them. And this is what's really been said to, to Babylon, a very similar, interesting parallel. In Jeremiah 51, we read this, Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her recompense. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that has made all the earth drunken. The nations have been drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Okay, so this false religion that came out of Babylon has seduced the governments of the world, the kingdoms, the religions of the world, have all been seduced by these things, and God will put an end to it. 
Back into Habakkuk then, picking up verse 17 of chapter 2. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood. And for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. What profit is the graven image that the maker thereof has graven it? The molden image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. It's like, you know, how is anybody benefited by making an idol? I mean, typically they would go out to the wood, they would chop a tree down, they would carve it, they'd stand it up and go, well, you could be my god. I mean, that's, that's not the kind of god you want. And it's just Habakkuk, or the Lord asking kind of Habakkuk the question in a sense, how would that benefit anybody? And yet people trust all the things they do. You know, we, we can look at that and think, well, that's silly. Nobody would do that today, really. We all do that today. We all make idols of the work of our own hands, the things we can do, our own efforts. We go on to the last word. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, okay, so again, these, these idols, awake unto the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. <laughs> There's plenty of scriptures that show the foolishness of trusting in idols. They, they can't answer. They're not real. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. This is the contrast. The things the world worships, they are nothing. But the Lord, well, he is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, idolatry is foolish and it's offensive to God. In Psalm 135, interestingly, verse 18, it actually tells us there that you become like the gods you worship. So if you worship the things of the world, then you will become cold and uncaring. And you can look at that, you can extrapolate that in all sorts of different ways. But ultimately, if you worship Jesus Christ, the good news is you become like Jesus. You become like the gods you worship. And now we go into chapter 3, and it's a real change now, because we're told it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shiginoth. This is some sort of musical instrument. It says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known in wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk starts off, he's heard God now speak about not only the, the judgment that is going to come upon Israel because of their sin, Judah specifically, but the, the Babylonians who are going to be bringing that judgment because they overstepped the mark, God will then bring all this judgment upon them. And so really Habakkuk now, thinking of his own people, thinking of the Jews, he says, look, in wrath, remember mercy. Is it a plea to God? And of course God does remember mercy. Fortunately, God's mercy endures Forever. In fact, if you look in Psalm 118, constantly there it's repeated, his mercy endures forever. And just as a little aside, I don't mind what translation you read. I do encourage you to revert to the King James to check things because it's probably the best translation we have in English. It's still a translation. There are many countries in the world that don't even have proper translations yet, so let's not get too carried away with things. But... We do need to have a good translation if we're going to study. But whatever you read, you will find in most versions that Psalm 118, it translates this as his love endures forever. Oh, it does. But that's not what this scripture says. Mercy in Hebrew is the word has said. Love is the word harb. 
In Psalm 118, it is not the word love. It is the word has said. It means mercy, and there is a difference. God's mercy endures forever. Verse 3. And now this is Habakkuk just overflowing with praise. This is the God who is in control. Again, he's pleading with God to have mercy on Israel, on Judah. And he says this, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, if you're not sure where they are, it's speaking of the journey that the Israelites took as they left Egypt, journeyed in the wilderness, and then came into the promised land. This is Selah. That's just that expression you find a lot in Psalms. It just means it's like a musical refrain. It means pause. This is why the commentators think that Habakkuk was probably a musician and a Levite. As he's doing this, it's just like a pause and like a musical refrain. And then he says, his glory covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. You think of the camp of Judah or Israel in the wilderness. Of course, they had that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, or the cloud of fire, the cloud and the pillar. There. And of course, the camp of Israel were in awe of God. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand that just speaks of his strength. And there was the hiding of his power. <clears throat> One commentator put it this way, God who had formerly displayed such power in delivering the Israelites from Egypt might secure, secure their posterity in like wonderful manner. That's kind of the idea that Habakkuk's really trying to allude to here. He's saying, Lord, remember mercy on your people. And Lord, you are the God that did this. You brought your people out of Egypt. You provided for them. You led them through the wilderness. Another commentator said, his glory covered the heavens, his glory when he descended on Mount Sinai and in the pillar of fire by night. Before him went the pestilence, the burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. That's the kind of God you want, the God that can actually measure the earth. He's outside of our realm of things. And behold, he drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. It seems to refer to the conquest of Canaan as the children of Israel came into Canaan, and the Lord went before them and fought their battles. I was reading just in Deuteronomy this morning as Moses at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 32, 33, and so on, is speaking of how God led them, and God fought the battles for them, drove out the inhabitants of the land. Again, accompanied by cataclysmic events. And we said a few weeks ago, done a little bit of a detour in our study. These references we have, the mountains being scattered, perpetual hills did bow. We tend to think of that as just kind of poetic. And certainly this is a song in a sense. It is a bit of poetry. But I believe there's a real historical element to these things, as we've already discussed. Joshua 10, we'll mention that again in a moment, is one place that you can see some of the cataclysmic events that took place that are recorded in the Old Testament that all seem to be interesting on a recurring cycle every 54 years or so. There's reasons for those things. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan. Cushion, by the way, is the same as Cush. Cush being the grandson of Noah, the one who was cursed. If you remember Shem, Ham, Jepheth, the sons of Noah. And Ham is the one that happens to go into the tent and sees his father laying there unclothed. And as a result of this, this is 
Strange situation, but as a result, Noah places a curse, not on Ham, but upon Cush. So he was like his grandson. And from Cush come the inhabitants of Canaan and the Egyptians and others. He says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This is speaking of Israel going through, out of Egypt and into the promised land. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was there an anger against the rivers? Now, the interesting thing, the rivers seem to be referenced here, the Red Sea, the Jordan, of course they crossed the rivers into the land. Was there wrath against the sea that thou did ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? God wasn't displeased with these rivers. He used them. He caused them to part. And it says, thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribe. The idea seems to be, for all the commentators have the same idea, uh, that this is like taking a bow uh, or a, an arrow out of its quiver. So you'd have the container, you take the bow out of it. It's making it naked. It's getting it ready to use uh, in, in war, effectively. So according to the oaths of the tribes, God made promises to the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes. Even thy words, Selah, thou did cleave the earth with rivers. Now, again, possibly an allusion to the rivers of the water that flowed from the rock in the wilderness. That, that rock was cleaved and water came out, as we mentioned earlier this morning in our communion. The mountains saw thee and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. And of course, at Mount Sinai, the mountain literally did shake. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. Now, this is the reference to Joshua 10, specifically, where we have this historical reference in the book in the Bible, in Joshua 10, that the earth, the sun stood still for a longer period, longer extended by about a day, so that Joshua could finish killing off, dealing with these um, inhabitants in the land that God had told them to deal with. Interestingly, at the same time as this, there's a legend of a long night in China at the same time. There's lots of historical verification for these things. So the sun and the moon stood still in the habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou did march through the land in indignation. Thou did thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. Again, it's just all speaking of God bringing this judgment on the inhabitants of the land. What God had done for the people, that is strike through with his staves, the head of his villages. Possibly here, there's an allusion to Caesarea. Remember the account where he's literally pinned to the ground with a tent peg. And they came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. They re- they're rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou did walk through the sea with thine horses, through the great heap of waters. Uh, again, it's just a suggestion here that the nations came out of the whirlwind to try and devour Israel, and of course they were defeated because God was the one that intervened. You know, God is the God who rolled back the Red Sea, who rolled back the Jordan. And I just get the, the, the sense of what Habakkuk's doing here. He's been thinking about his own people, that God had... He was crying for God to bring judgment upon the nation of Judah for their iniquity. God says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And he says, but they're worse than we are. And God says, yeah, they are, but I'm going to judge them also. But Israel does need to be judged. And then now 
Habakkuk is looking back and thinking of all that God has done. And, you know, sometimes to get the right perspective for the way ahead, we need to look back to see where we've come from. If you've ever tried walking in a straight line, it's not easy. The the worst one, and you probably experienced this, is if you've ever been to the beach. And you go with your family, you set up camp, and you put your chairs down and everything else, and then you walk out to the sea. And we know we all do it. We walk in a straight line. And you walk out, and you go however far it is, and you get a little pat in the water, and it's like, no, it's too cold. We're not going to go in, and there might be crabs, so I'm not going to go any further than that. And then you look back, and you think, well, that's straight back. And you walk back, and you find that you're half a mile away from where your family were. We just lose that kind of sense of direction. We lose where we are. It's very easy to do that. It's the kind of thing that Habakkuk's really doing here. He's kind of looking back to see, constantly checking, well, that's where I've come from. So I know that I'm now on the right trajectory. What he's saying is, I don't really understand all that God's doing, but I know what God has done. I can see this train before or behind me of all the things that God has accomplished. He's always been faithful. He's delivered. He's provided. He's protected. He's dealt with all of our enemies. All the problems we faced the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, all these things. And it helps to chart the course ahead. When I heard my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. This is what God is going to do, was going to do in Habakkuk's time to the people of Israel. And then this incredible ending to the book. And this is possibly one of the most amazing statements of faith in the Bible. He says, although the fig tree shall not blossom. The fig tree being, of course, an idiom for Israel. He says, okay, so Lord, you're saying that the fig tree, Israel is not going to blossom. Neither shall the fruits be in the vines. Again, the vine was another symbol used of Israel. God had called them to be like a vine. Jeremiah says they'd actually become a degenerate plant. But here it's saying that the fruit won't be in the vines. Israel's not going to prosper through this. And then the labor of the olive shall fail. Israel's full of olive groves. If you've ever been there, you'll have seen them. There's loads of olive oil there. And the field shall yield no meat. Now, this is a fulfillment of what Deuteronomy 28 and lots of Old Testament passages speak of, that if they disobey God, the Lord will bring judgment upon them. And rather than being blessed in every way, the Lord would remove those blessings. And the fields wouldn't yield their meat. Not meat just in terms of meat as in cows and stuff, but meat as in food, foodstuffs, whatever, vegetables or anything. The flock shall be cut off from the foal. And now I think there's a broader picture there, not just in terms of sheep and so on, but in terms of the people, the children of Israel, the nation, were going to be cut off from the foal where they lived. And there should be no herd in the stalls. Israel were going to be thrust out of their land. And Habakkuk's saying, Lord, even though you're going to do all of this, and the Lord is making it clear to Habakkuk, this is what's going to happen. He goes on and says, yet... Will I rejoice in the Lord? Even though, Lord, you're going to do all of this, Israel's going to be cast out of their land. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's going to be my joy. Not looking at situations and circumstances, but looking only to God. 
I will join the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet. Okay, so like a deer. Have you ever seen a deer run? They're very light and they're very nimble and, and so on. And it's saying, I, I'm going to skip. I'm going to be in freedom. That's the idea. And he will make me to walk upon my high places. What a statement that last bit is. He's, Habakkuk's saying, the Lord is going to bring me back and I'm going to walk in the land. This land that God is bringing judgment upon, he's saying, I know that the Lord is going to bring me back in freedom and I'm going to walk in freedom in this land. And it just ends to the chief singer on my stringed instruments, just as committed to the musicians to sing. Just want to compare with one of the other verses in scripture that is just like this. Really, it's just like Job says, though all of this befall me, yet though he slay me, will I trust him? That's what Habakkuk's saying. He starts off the book, how long? And he concludes by going, okay, Lord, I trust you. Job 19, 25. Job, in the midst of all of his troubles, says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and then he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin, worms destroy this body. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? Just before your lunch on a Sunday. Yet in my flesh shall I see God. He says, even though this body will be destroyed, I know that God will raise me up. He speaks of God as his redeemer. The one that purchases him back. Whom I shall see for myself and mine eye shall behold and not another. Though my reins be consumed within me. Job here is saying, yeah, whatever's going on in my life, whatever the problems I don't fully understand, I don't know why God's allowing, but I know that I'm going to stand on this earth. I will be justified. I will stand with God in a resurrected body. And I'm going to see God with my own eyes. And it will all make sense. You see, God is faithful. And that final chapter of the book of Habakkuk is just a statement of look behind. Look what God has done in your life. You don't need me to give you countless examples. Use your own lives to tell you how faithful God has been throughout your journey. And there are many things we don't understand. Joy and I were talking the other day. There are many things in my life I don't understand why God didn't allow certain things or didn't do certain things in the way that I thought they should be done. But God is faithful. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this incredible record that we have from Habakkuk. Help us, Lord, to learn the lessons. Lord, as we said last week, when we ask how long regarding our situation, Lord, help us to be reminded that you also repeatedly in Scripture ask your people how long Will you waver between two opinions? How long will you not walk with me? How long will you not trust me? Lord, help us, as we've seen this morning, to look over our shoulder at where we've come from or what you have already done in our lives. The journey we've been on, the way you've provided and delivered and protected us. And Lord, may that chart our course forward. Whatever may come, may we trust you, Lord, because you are good and you are faithful. Oh Lord, please impress these things upon our hearts this morning. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.